Just a quick heads up, this episode was recorded in June of 2021, so there is a reference within the episode to COVID that is obviously out of date, but aside from that, hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to another Fascinator episode from Hat Collecting. Uh, on the main show, we take a big picture look at the guest's life. Uh, and here we take a magnifying glass and we learn more about a specific topic. And Patreon subscribers get early access to these. I am your host, Lacey Artemis, and it's time to get fascinated. I am joined today by Robin, who is going to teach us about cancer and many associated things. So Robin, can you tell me what uh, you find most fascinating about cancer? <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> okay. There's so many different things here. Um, the first thing I'd say is that for almost everybody who gets into cancer research, it's not so much a why we did it as a who we did it for. Um, almost all of us get into this because we loved somebody that we lost to cancer. And it's a very, very personal thing for almost everybody that I've met. Um, this does tend to be a thing I ask when talking with other cancer researchers because I find people's motivations fascinating. And yeah, for so many of us, it's because of a personal connection. So for me, I mean, I'm fascinated by cancer itself. I'm fascinated by how it does what it does because it's such an extraordinarily intricate, wow, like it's a terrifying foe and Yet it's fascinating on a scientific level because it's just so good at what it does. And there is no one cancer. Like we use cancer as this, this big umbrella term, but different cancers act differently. They metastasize, uh, which is when it spreads to other parts in the body. They metastasize differently. Some don't metastasize at all. Um, like the rates of complications, the rates, like the types of symptoms that you get are going to be different from cancer to cancer. So really every different type of cancer is different mm -hmm. and the ways they're treated are different. I mean, the cancers that I work in primarily are urinary cancers. So bladder cancers, uh, kidney cancers are what I'm working on at this time. There's others that would fall under that heading, but those are the two that I work with. And like in kidney cancer, we don't even use chemo. Uh, we use other systemic treatments, but everybody tends to think of chemo as the, as what is used for cancer. It's chemo, but we don't even use chemo at all. And there's just so much to learn and so many different aspects of cancer. And you can look at it through the lens of social inequity, which I will get into later on. You can look at it through the lens of, I've been attending a lot of conferences on how COVID has changed cancer and the way that we care for cancer. Um, you can look at it in terms of pharmacogenetics, which I'll discuss later and is amazing. And I will probably cry when I talk about it, full warning. Um, there's so many things to learn and explore in relation to cancer. And at the heart of it, it's all about how do we help people? How do we help fewer people get cancer? How do we protect the people who get it? How do we catch them at an earlier stage when our tools are more effective? How do we treat them in the way that is least terrible for them or sometimes can be pretty bearable? Um, how do we reduce the side effects they experience? How do we mitigate the pain they have? How do we extend their survival? How do we give them better good time in the time they have? How do we extend the time until they pass on if we're unable to save them? And there's just so much to it. And it's, it's a terrible thing. And I can't wait until we have figured out how to cure as many of these as possible. 
and until we are past this. But in the meantime, I think I could spend the entire rest of my life studying it and still feel like I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what there is to know. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I should say off the top, I realized that the, the intro is perhaps a little more upbeat than than maybe it should have been for a topic like this like you're gonna teach us about cancer and it's like and i also didn't say off the top that you're a cancer researcher but i'm sure the the audience has figured that out by now um yeah you sent me a good standing of the american academy of cancer researchers and the european academy of cancer researchers sorry association excellent so yeah excellent well um perhaps then uh since you know COVID is ever present still. Um, we're, we're, I feel like we're starting to get to the point that it's starting to be a bit more in the rearview mirror. Um, but you, you mentioned how how it's changed through the, the pandemic, and I'm definitely curious to hear about that. So perhaps we can start there, unless there makes more sense in a different chronological order. That's totally fine. I mean, I am autistic. It's very easy for me to bop around to <laughs> different lily pads. Um, yeah, no, it's been both a good thing in some ways and a very terrible thing in many other ways. And essentially what we are seeing is that we are going to have a huge backlog to deal with. We will see an increased death toll from COVID, how it has affected cancer, because early diagnosis is so crucial. It is so, so, so crucial. We, for many things, so you start out with a localized cancer, which means that you have one tumor. And it's just in an organ or it's somewhere and it's doing its thing. And then it metastasizes, which is when it starts shedding off cells and those cells enter the system and go elsewhere in the body and start their own new tumors everywhere else. And it is so hugely a different experience treating localized cancer as versus metastatic cancer. I mean, in kidney cancer, mine, like moderate risk, if it's still a localized cancer, means you have an 80% chance of being alive in five years. Whereas once it metastasizes, that literally flips. You now, moderate risk now means you have a 20% chance of being alive in five years. And the rates of death rise so precipitously once we have that um, metastatic thing occurring. And so, yeah, we need to get to people early. We need early diagnosis. And what we've seen over the past year and a half is that understandably, people have not been getting diagnosed You know, they've been staying out of hospitals. They've been staying out of their doctor's offices. They have been defending against this very immediate threat of COVID. And as a result, all of this other stuff has been sliding. And so we are months or even potentially more than a year past when these people should have been getting diagnosed and potentially started on treatment. Um, We've also been canceling surgeries, you know, when hospitals were getting overwhelmed Well, we have to cancel things like cardiac surgeries and cancer surgeries. And so we have people that should have been getting treatment who have been diagnosed who were not getting appropriate treatment, and that gives their cancer more time to grow. So that's been a huge problem and will be a huge problem because all of those bills are going to come due very, very shortly, and we are going to have a huge backlog to deal with. Um, In another way, it's been a potential positive because telemedicine has become much more available and accessible. And we have been having this for now, obviously, there are things you can't do in telemedicine for cancer. Um, Like if you need IV chemo, you can't really do that with telemedicine. But maybe what we can have moving forward, and these are discussions that are being had in the cancer community now, 
maybe we can have nurses in rural areas that are trained to give chemo. And so you have the doctor doing telemedicine to a nurse in a rural area that is then a lab that can then give chemo locally. And there are other chemo and systemic therapy campaigns that don't have to be IV that can be done by pills. And those mm-hmm. could potentially be handled all through telemedicine. And we did this thing that made a lot of sense at the time where we created these big cancer centers and it made perfect sense. Like if we localize everything, we'll be able to have all these specialists in one place, all the equipments in one place, specialized nurses. We have all the wards, everything. It's your one-stop shop. You know, you can go and you can get all your imaging and your chemo or your systemic treatment. Chemo falls under systemic treatment, but there are other systemic treatments as well. Um, you can get it all done at once. You can see your multiple specialists because sometimes you need to see multiple specialists at once. And you can get it all done on the same day. It's great. The problem is, is that in order to create these big localized cancer centers, we pulled resources from smaller community places. And so now instead of everybody having cancer treatment fairly close by, maybe you have to travel five hours to get to one of the cancer centers. And you know, you have, maybe you have to do that twice a week, maybe three times a week, mm-hmm. depending on what your regimen is. And this is a huge difficulty for people who are in rural areas who need access to treatment. Yeah. So, so. if we can use telemedicine to start addressing that problem, it's going to have a huge impact on those in rural areas. So, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was just sort of reviewing the, the list of potential topics, uh, subtopics under this uh, subject that you sent to me. And so I noticed that one of the ones you mentioned was like the physiology of how cancer actually works. And so I'm now I'm going to go back into playing the role of the lay person who, who doesn't know that much about it and is curious. And so you can correct me if I'm wrong or clarify if necessary, but my understanding of how cancer works is that it's when a, because cells are constantly kind of like, uh, replacing and redividing and there can be like kind of errors in the coding or there are mutations and that's kind of how it gets started and then that mutated cell can then kind of keep growing and uh, I don't know if it like takes over other cells or if it just sort of like pushes everything kind of out of the way like um, you could probably oh, explain that. So yeah cancer is always a genetic disease always and I don't mean that in the sense that it's hereditary although there certainly are hereditary cancers. Um, the, there's 50, more than 50 different hereditary cancer syndromes. And we see those, those account for about five to 10% of all cancers. So the other 90% are still genetic because they are starting with a genetic change. Um, in over half of cancers, the genetic change that starts is the loss of what's called a tumor suppressor gene. So we have uh, like P53, TP53, genes like that, uh, BRCA1 and 2, which a lot of people have heard of in relation to breast cancer. Um, These are genes that, so you have your DNA and you have it together in your two strands. And when it needs to be copied, it splits apart briefly. So then it fills it in with the corresponding bases that need to be there. And that's all fine. But what happens when you have a mistake in that? Okay, so you have these genes, mismatch repair genes that are supposed to go in there and be like, whoa, that doesn't go with this. And they take the wrong one and they put the right one in. But if you lose those genes, then all of a sudden you're just getting error after error that's not being caught. And now it's being turned into these malformed proteins and it's all bad. And that's when you start getting things like cancer. So tumor suppressor genes actively suppress tumor growth 
And those genes are often also mismatch repair genes. So you're really getting this double whammy where you're both losing what keeps the tumors from turning or what keeps things from turning into tumors and you're losing what stops genetic damage from occurring. And then it just starts spiraling out of control and it turns off the mechanism that usually would cause what we call apoptosis, like planned cell death. Cells are supposed to die if they're malformed and they're bad and they're going to cause trouble, but they turn off those mechanisms. And now suddenly you just have this thing growing out of control. And then it starts doing things like sending or it'll uh, pull blood cells to it. It'll create essentially arteries and capillaries and things running to itself um, because it needs blood to feed this new and growing tumor. So it will actively recruit resources from around it in order to continue this out of control growth. Um, And that's actually one of the ways that we are trying to interfere with cancer. There are treatments that interfere with that angiogenesis part like where it interferes with it bringing blood to itself and it interferes with it getting what it needs from the, what we call the the microenvironment, the area around the tumor. Like how can we interfere with it getting resources and stop it from growing out of control? So yeah, every cancer, every single cancer is genetic, whether or not that's a hereditary thing. Mm -hmm. And anything carcinogenic increases that, which is mm -hmm. why we see increased, for example, smoking is a, big one. Holy cow, it's a big one. Um, So smoking causes genetic changes due to the chemicals in it being carcinogenic. And that's why you are far more likely to get certain kinds of cancers if you're a smoker, because it is accelerating that rate of genetic damage that's occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of this stuff uh, I sort of had maybe a loose knowledge of between either watching a lot of um, of medical dramas or I know that my, my mom has a, a lot of fascination. She's more interested in psychology generally, but she also is interested in just kind of this st- sort of stuff in general. Yeah. So I, I think I've probably heard little bits and pieces of this kind of stuff from her. But um, I'm, I'm curious to, uh, so the, I guess these two two parts are kind of related, but you said that the social inequity of cancer and the sociology of who is affected. Um, yeah, I'm definitely interested to, to hear about those two. <laughs> those two are huge. Um, black folks in particular, uh, black men are 10% more likely to get cancer than white men and almost 25% more likely to die of it. And with black women, we actually see a lower rate of cancer, about 7% lower than white women, but 13% more likely to die of it. And this goes back partially to what I was talking about earlier, which is that early detection is so important. And there are so many systemic barriers in place for Black people and for other racialized people just to be able to access treatment. Um, And that can be medical care providers aren't taking their concerns seriously, which is a consistent problem we see, particularly with Black women, whose pain is not considered as important and not listened to. Um, It may be they can't take time off work. It may be they know they couldn't afford treatment, so they don't bother to get diagnosed. Um, It could be they have not had the ability to become as educated as many uh, white people get on different cancer symptoms and things like that. So they don't realize when what they're dealing with is likely a cancer symptom. Um, There's a number of other things beyond that, like the fact that many Black people tend to be economically disadvantaged, and so they don't have access to as good a nutrition as many white people do. And so then you start getting that nutrition aspect going on. Um, Some cancers can be affected by 
Well, for example, red meat increases risk of certain kinds of cancers. So frequent consumption of red meat, if all you have near you is a McDonald's and you're eating off the value meal, you know, multiple times a week, it's not great for you. (laughs) Um, So there's all these factors that have been put upon black populations in North America and elsewhere that, um, and I'm not going to go into much detail about elsewhere because my knowledge base is more based in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, in various African nations, you're going to be dealing with different systemic factors there that affect things. But here, this Um, is what we're looking at. I want to potentially clarify one thing just because I'm I'm not uh, 100% sure. Um, so I, I do understand the the kind of social uh, aspect of like you were saying, like the less education and uh, typically, um, you know, the pain's not taken seriously, so they can't get treatment as much. Yeah. Um, is there, because I, I suspect there's probably someone out there who might be thinking, oh, if, if people of color are more likely like get get cancer at a higher rate, is there any genetic component to that or is it purely just, or mostly just increased rates for certain cancers among people with different genetic ancestry, but it can also just as easily go the the other way. Like um, there are certain cancers that black women are far less likely to get than white women and then other cancers where it's reversed. So it's not an across the board thing by any means. It's very much based on those particular cancers as to where your risk falls based on your ancestral group. Oh, thank you for clarifying that. I just wanted to to make sure that, like, again, so I understand so that the audience, because there's probably someone out there who, if I'm, if I'm asking in my head, someone watching yeah. is probably asking sure. it. So, so yeah, so uh, there's, I wouldn't say there's a huge across all cancers. Mm-hmm. The genetic aspect to me is not going to be as important as all of those social inequities that we're dealing with. And that's also where we're looking at the significantly increased rates of death. It's not because they are black or Latin or whatever. It's because they're not getting treated early and they're not being treated as appropriately and they don't have as much access to healthcare. And we've actually been starting to narrow this gap to an extent. And luckily that is falling faster, like year to year from like 20, 2019 to 2021, um, white men have about 1.6 fewer cancers and black men have about 2.6 fewer cancers. Fantastic. We're getting there. We still have a long way to go, but the progress has started. And part of that is just the cancer community becoming much more aware of these barriers and trying to figure out what we can do to address them. Because we shouldn't have anybody dying unnecessarily. Like it's, I mean, fine, we can't save everybody, but we shouldn't be having unnecessary deaths, especially not to preventable things. Absolutely. Uh, and and I, I know, and this is probably another thing that you can speak to a little bit. I know that uh, I, I've heard that that refrain of you saying like, oh, we've sunk however many billions or whatever into cancer research, but you know, we haven't cured. And that comes back to the whole, there's not just one type of cancer. And I have heard that a lot of progress has been made in multiple types of cancer and, and prolonging life. Um, so that. Uh, but lost the lost the the, the thread in my head. <laughs> we have functionally cured CML, for example, like which is a kind of leukemia. You can take a pill every day, and you will live, and you will die of something else other than the CML. Um, we've made incredible progress. We've introduced things like immunotherapy, which can take about twenty percent of people who are stage four terminal cancer and save their lives, and that's. That's incredible. And right now, 
um, well, I guess to take this in a, a pharmacogenetics perspective, because, oh, God, this is exciting. This is the part where I cry. <laughs> so as I was saying, tumors are all genetic. And once you get this tumor going, it continues to just reproduce and reproduce and reproduce. And as it reproduces, it's introducing new elements of mutations into this tumor. So you may have genetic signature A and B and C and D all in this one tumor because it just keeps reproducing. So we give you chemo. And this chemo is really good against types A and B. Awesome. We knock out all your A and B and it seems like the cancer's gone away, but then it turns out you had like 2% of C and a percent of D and that C and D starts growing again. And now you have a recurrence. And we see this as a failure of chemo when in reality, the chemo didn't really fail. You know, it, it likely did what we wanted it to do, which was target A and B. But the problem was there was more to it than that. And so right now we're doing There's 20 different trials right now happening for mRNA vaccines against cancer. Um, we are testing them against myeloma, against leukemia, against breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer. We're testing them against all these different kinds of cancers. Um, one of the ones we're doing right now is glioblastoma and there's a 5% survival rate at five years for glioblastoma. It's nearly a death sentence for everybody, almost everybody who gets it. And so what we're doing is we're sequencing people's tumors and we look at the 20 most common mutations in that tumor. And then we create an mRNA vaccine against those mutations. And I'm so hopeful and so excited because it's possible that this could be what we've been waiting for, that that this could be the way that we're able to train the body to recognize because part of what cancer does is that it turns off the immune system. It makes itself invisible to the immune system so that it doesn't get taken out. And that's what immunotherapy targets. It essentially trains the body how to recognize it again. But this would be an extremely effective way. And the hope is that if we're targeting 20 different mutations, that every tumor cell in that body is going to have at least one of those mutations. And we can just take it all out all at once. Um, like I, I try very hard not to think of it in terms of a cure for cancer, because that's, that's so very unlikely to have one cure for all these different things, but this might be the closest thing we get. And I don't think it's going to work against all cancers, but even if it works against some, like, like, my God, the lives we're going to save and the suffering that is going to be reduced from the world. Um, so, and yeah, these are, these are things I get emotional about because this is every day I do this work and I see what happens to my patients and I grieve when I see them suffering and getting sicker and when they die and and I don't want this to keep happening. None of us want this to keep happening. You know, we are all in this so that we can, so that we can stop this, so that people can live happy and healthy lives without being taken out by cancer. And this is such an incredible development. And I am so hopeful for the future and where we might go with this. And yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen. I mean, there's a lot of things that have worked great 
in the lab and then we put them into humans and it just doesn't act the same. So I try very hard to not get too excited about whatever new, you know, oh, it's a breakthrough against cancer. We found that this cures cancer in mice. Yeah, we're really, really good at curing cancer in mice. <laughs> we, are, we are so good. If you're a mouse and you get cancer, you're fine. Like we, We've got you. But it's so hard to make that jump to something working in humans. And, and now we have something that has already been proven to work in humans for something else. And all we have to do is make a lateral jump to it working for this. And I am, I am so hopeful. It's impossible not to be hopeful. I, I want to, uh, that's really fascinating because I know that uh, the, the COVID vaccines are based on uh, the, the mRNA thing as well. And I was thinking of asking this as you were talking, and I think it, I think I may have answered my own question. I was going to say, did, um, did the, like sort of like chicken and egg thing, did they get the idea for that kind of cancer treatment from that? Or did the COVID vaccine idea come from doing that with cancer? But they're probably both kind of happening at the same time. Yeah, both of them have been under work for a very long time. Like this is not, but things have been stepped up because of how successful it's been against COVID. So like Moderna, for example, is working with, um, uh, oh, MD Anderson Cancer Center down in Texas. Um, They're the ones doing the colorectal trial. So we have these companies now that have like huge established background in doing this now partnering with cancer centers to um, get these trials going at an accelerated pace. Whereas before it would have been just little individual labs working on it and trying to figure out how they might make it happen. So I think the pace at which we're seeing this is now going to be significantly stepped up. And I just, God, I can't wait for results. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I guess uh, then one of the next questions, I think we've kind of touched on all the things that you listed, um, I will give you a chance to kind of do any any parting thoughts that you might have or anything you might have missed. But I did want to ask for anyone who is listening or watching who might um, want to get more involved or might want to learn more and dig more into this. Um, can you recommend any like resources, any organizations, anything like that? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of incredible cancer organizations. Um, there's also... <laughs> There's also a lot of controversy about this particular thing because there's a number of organizations that uh, have a lot of controversy around them in terms of pinkwashing and things like that. Um, But yeah, I would start, uh, go to the, you know, American Association for Cancer Research is a great place to start. And they have a lot of things that are available. Um, Johns Hopkins um, does a lot of cool they'll do like webcasts and stuff about different cancer topics and discussing things with different cancer researchers. Um, Memorial Sloan Kettering has a fantastic webcast series about this where they talk to different experts. Um, some of this might be a little bit above the average layperson's understanding, but quite a few of them are done in a very accessible way, particularly the ones that are gonna be more about social inequities and stuff will be very accessible to people. Um, I mean, we've, there's just, there's so much cool research about this. Like anything you can think of, there's a way that it ties into cancer. And yeah, so I would definitely check out Memorial Sloan Kettering's resources, Johns Hopkins resources. Um, I'm not really going to direct to specific cancer organizations like nonprofits and stuff, because again, there can be 
debate about which ones are good to support and which ones aren't. And I, I just don't want to, I don't want to get hated on for saying like, I don't know, I think this one's dodgy. And then people who like, they're like, what's wrong with you? No, that's, that's yeah. totally fair. Um, so yeah, I guess at this point we've, uh, we've done, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to, we touched on the things that, that you brought up. I was just checking the text to make sure. Um, and I wanted to give you a chance if there's anything that you think you might have missed or maybe you didn't quite say everything you want to say about it or if there's anything else you didn't include in the text that you, yeah, um, I'll give you a chance here. I would say the only other thing that I didn't really cover um, is my great frustration with how cancer is reported on in the media. Um, and I think I touched on it a little bit earlier when I mentioned, you know, oh, huge new breakthrough, we're going to cure cancer because we figured out mouse trials. And every little thing that happens basically gets hashed to death in the media as a cure for cancer is on the horizon. And this actually does an extraordinary amount of damage because one, all of this is super preliminary. Like you can't jump from, oh, we figured out how to interrupt this pathway in mice, you know, maybe humans are a year later. But two, it causes problems between oncologists and patients because everybody, there's so many people going through cancer, so many people who love them. Anytime there's a new breakthrough, their relatives are deluging them with information about it that they saw on TV or whatever. And then they're bringing it into their oncologist's office and going, hey, this. And the oncologist is like, well, we can't do that, or that doesn't work, or no, that thing doesn't actually help. And then they stop trusting their oncologist. And it gradually creates this chasm where they think that their oncologist doesn't know enough, like maybe they're just not up to date on the new research. And we also see this a lot of people in an effort to help people that they love who are going through cancer will recommend, have you tried this herbal regimen? What about these vitamins? You know, cannabis will cure cancer, you know, like all these things that they, they hear about from somebody else or they find on the internet. And it really worries me because I see a lot of patients who have not gone for timely fashion because they are trying these things so that they don't get to treatment in a timely fashion because they are scared of the treatment, which is understandable, but they spend time then trying these other things that they are hoping will work. And sometimes that results in a patient that we can no longer cure. And I'm especially frustrated by this at this moment because I've been trying to get a group pulled off Facebook that has tens of thousands of followers where they are advocating drinking urine to cure cancer and rubbing lumps with urine rather than going and getting treatment and diagnosis. And I look at these posts where people are saying, no, you just have to rub a lump with urine, you know, twice a day and it'll start going away. And they're actively discouraging people from seeking diagnosis. And I know that this kind of advice comes with a death toll. People will die because of these kinds of things. So please, I understand the impulse to help. I really do. It's so hard to see somebody that you love hurting and suffering and you want to fix it however you can. But please don't rush to send them the most recent article about a mouse development or something about, you know, drink more St. John's wort and you'll be better. Like these sort of things end up actually hurting the people that we're trying to help. And we really just need to put so much emphasis on early detection, early detection, early detection, and then treatment. 
with whatever kind of treatment is appropriate for that specific kind of cancer. And I know it's not perfect. And I know we all know people that have died from cancer. We all know people that have had a terrible time on chemo. We have seen it happen. And I know we don't want this for our loved ones. And it's not perfect, but it's the best thing we have right now. And it gives your loved one the best chance of survival we can offer. Mm -hmm. Or if we can't offer them survival, at least we can give them more time to be here and make memories and spend more time with their loved ones. And that's all we want. Like, there's no cure for cancer that we're hiding. Like all of us, every day we get up and all we want to do is fix people. And if there was a cure, God, believe me, even pharmaceutical companies would be all over a cure because somebody who lives is somebody that goes on to continue being a consumer. You know, they're somebody who's going to get sick and they're going to come for treatment for other things. Whereas somebody who dies stops being a consumer right then and there. You're never going to get another dollar from them. So even if your argument is from the basis of big pharma wants money and it doesn't pay to cure no, it does pay to cure because you want as many consumers as you can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say um, in regards to the, uh, the issue of people seeking alternative treatments, I think a very uh, big noteworthy example of that is Steve Jobs. I'm pretty sure that I know he did seek alternative methods and I'm pretty sure I read that he, when he decided to finally go and actually get like the, 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 the proper treatment that he said that he regretted not doing that sooner because he wasted his time. And at that point, I think it was too late for him. So if you need incentive, that's a, that's a really famous big name. So go and look that up and, and that might help you, um, encourage you to go and see a doctor. <laughs> um, if you want to do the herbal treatments and stuff, do them alongside, you know, as long as you've checked and these aren't actually harmful because some of them are actively harmful, but mm -hmm. as long as they aren't actively harmful, do them alongside other treatments. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other, like seek standard treatment and, you know, drink the teas and everything alongside it. If you feel it may help your course of disease or may help you get better faster, um, go for it, you know, but don't do it in place of because we have some things that work and they don't work as often as we need them to. They don't work for everybody, but they do work in many cases. And even, and systemic therapies aren't necessarily as bad as they used to be. Like in a lot of cases, they're quite a bit more kind on the body than they used to be because we've become much more dialed in with things like dosages and, we have different treatments now that aren't necessarily chemos and we have different regimens where we can, you know, dial down the dose. So there's fewer side effects and that sort of thing. Um, so it isn't automatically the horror show that many of us have been exposed to through, you know, TV and things like that. But even if it is, it's still better than dying. You know, it's, it's a chance to be here. It's a chance to get to live longer and make more memories and get to experience more and be with the ones you love. And that's worth anything. Absolutely. And that's, uh, I think that's a great note to uh, wrap this up on. Thank you for watching this fascinator. You can find the show online at hatcollecting.com and at hatcollecting on social media. You can find me at artemiscreates.com. 
And please like and subscribe and tell your friends to help the show grow and keep the fascination flowing. And if there's a subject you'd like to learn about, leave a comment or send me a message and I'll see if I can find someone to get fascinated by about it. Uh, So until next time, um, look forward to your next fascination. 